Thanks for listening to the World Religions Podcast by J.R. Foresteros. This is a class I'm teaching at Beaver Creek Church of the Nazarene, so from time to time you might hear some people asking questions. Uh, unfortunately, due to the nature of the podcast recording software, it probably is not going to come through, but I'll do my best to represent those questions fairly in a way that you can hear them. Other than that, everything should be good to go, so enjoy the podcast and thanks again for listening. So as we're getting started tonight, I just want to take a moment to review our methodology that we're taking from Paul's approach to the Athenians uh, in Acts 17. So this is, this is really one of the first places in Scripture we see someone who is a Christian truly sharing the gospel with people who have no idea uh, even about the, the Jewish faith. And so Paul's sort of having to start from scratch, and it's fascinating how he approaches them, and it's instructive for this class. So the first thing that we're going to do tonight is talk about a basic introduction to Buddhism's worldview. Uh, what do they believe? How do they see the world? What are some of the, kind of the key core components of their faith? Then we'll talk about some areas of agreement between Buddhism and Orthodox Christian theology and practice. What are some things that we agree about? What are some things that are true that are in Buddhism and true parts of their worldview? And then... Uh, finally, we'll talk about some important areas of disagreement between Buddhism and Christianity. Why are these not the same religion? Why is Buddhism not just one uh, sect of Christianity or vice versa? And again, the goal is to equip you to build, a, to build truth-seeking relationships with people who consider themselves to be Buddhist. So uh, we're going to be talking tonight about the middle path. That is the, if you could put Buddhism in a really small nutshell, it would be moderation. It would be the middle path. And I think this is why Buddhism has become such a trendy religion. Uh, there are a lot of people that if they're trying to get away from whatever faith they were raised in and run to something else, a lot of them seem to run to Buddhism. And you'll see that it's got a, a lot of attractive things about it on, on a very basic level. If you, if you don't really get into their worldview and why the, why the things that they say work, work the way that they do, and, and some sort of deeper understanding of the structures. Buddhism seems like a really clean, simple, easy thing to do, and that's basically just don't, don't go overboard on anything. Just sort of be moderate in everything, and, and if you do that, you're sort of a Buddhist. So it ends up being real. In fact, before Scientology took over Hollywood, I think most actors, it was kind of trendy for them to, to be Buddhist. And, you know, probably many of you have heard about Richard Gere having been proclaimed an enlightened Buddha and things like that. So uh, then Scientology came in and took over and everything got crazy. But uh, I think that that's a large part of why Buddhism is so attractive is, is because, uh, again, it just at a, at a surface level, it just makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot in that basic approach to Buddhism that fits with a lot of other religious practices. So uh, you're not going to find anyone really who doesn't think you should do things in moderation. You're not going to find anyone that's like, I, th I think if you're going to do something, you should just do that and only that as much of that as you possibly can. Uh, you know, most people are pretty okay with moderation, so, so it just seems to make sense. So we'll, tonight we'll talk more about uh, really what the sort of the nuts and bolts of Buddhism is and why it works the way it does. So uh, unlike Hinduism last week, we can actually talk about a founder. We can talk about this person named Buddha. We can talk about who he was. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that he was born in... Well, he was born in what is modern-day Nepal, but at that time it was India. And so Buddhism came from Hinduism. 
And in a lot of ways, Buddhism is either founded on Hinduism or is a reaction to Hinduism. So that's why we did Hinduism last week and we're doing Buddhism this week. Because if you really, if you don't know anything about Hinduism, if you don't understand the way the Hindu uh, worldview works, then you're not really going to understand Buddhism and why Buddha, Buddhists say the things they say and make the claims that they make about reality. So to review... This is the Hindu worldview. The Hindus believe that all reality is this endless ocean called Brahman. That's their term for reality. And that everything is like all physical stuff are like waves on the top of the ocean. Okay, the wave is not really separate from the ocean. It's just one little part of this real big ocean. And that's what the, the Hindus called Maya. Reality. Reality is an illusion. It's not really permanent. It's always changing because it's all part of the Brahman. Uh, and then they believe that we are all caught in this endless cycle of time called samsara. Right? That, that, that everything that's happened, everything that's happening has already happened before and it's going to happen again. And it just keeps going round and round and round, just like the ocean. Right? It's just, just endless. It, 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 you can't really talk about where the ocean starts and where it ends. It, it's just there and it's just always there and it's always going to be there. And so individual people have what we could think of as a soul. They call it the Atman. But our soul is that, that most basic part of ourself that's below our perceptions and below our senses and all of that. And that's the part of us that's really the Brahman. That's that part of us. That's the wave that crests up out of that. And when we live in our lives, we accumulate karma, good or bad. When we do good things, we get good karma. When we do bad things, we get bad karma. And when, when we die, when our physical life ends, the accumulated karma causes our Atman, our soul, to be reincarnated one way or the other. We either have a better station in life or a worse station in life, depending on our karma. And so that then again, that wheel just goes around and around and around and around and around, over and over and over, life after life after life after life. And eventually, the goal of all of that is to escape from the cycle of samsara, and they call that moksha, or liberation, getting out of that. So the goal in Hinduism, by being a good Hindu, by following the different yogas, the different paths, is to escape from the cycle of death and rebirth. Right? Is that all? If you weren't here last week, that's a whole lot of information in a very small nutshell. You can go back and listen to the podcast from last week, and we'll, we, we stretch it out. But if you were here last week, hopefully all of that sounds familiar. That's the, that's the basic way Hindus see the world. And, and when... Siddhartha Gautama, who is the Buddha, was born, that's the, cult, that's the worldview, that's a system of beliefs that he was born into. So that's what he grew up being taught and what he grew up believing. And so uh, Buddhism grows out of this worldview, and we'll come back to it a couple of times and re refer back to, uh, to this worldview. But let's talk about Siddhartha Gautama. So he was born... Uh, to Indian royalty, and again, like what I said, in modern-day Nepal, but back then it was just part of India. Uh, his parents raised him in luxury. I uh, guess he was basically like a prince. And so uh, he spent his whole life basically wanting for nothing and living just uh, having you know, every desire that he could possibly imagine fulfilled. Uh, he was born about 563 B.C., so a little over 500 years before Jesus came on the scene. Okay, But when he was 30, he finally started to wonder why he never went out of his palace. And so he sneaked out of his palace when he was 30 years old. And when he was out in the world for the first time, he experienced what are now called the four passing sights. So uh, the first thing that he saw was an old man. And he had never encountered old age before. And so he saw, he saw an old man, and he thought that was interesting. Uh, then he saw a sick person. 
And again, he had never really encountered illness or suffering in that sense before. And then finally, he encountered, then he, the third sight was a, a corpse, a dead body. So he saw an old body, a sick body, and a dead body. And these were all really the first time that, uh, that Siddhartha had ever experienced negativity and suffering in the world. And so uh, the last thing that he saw was a wandering ascetic, one of those renunciates that we talked about in Hinduism last week, that once you become old enough and you've finished your household duties and all of that, you can uh, basically leave the world and go kind of become a wandering uh, mystic who's just pursuing enlightenment. So he saw one of those walking around, and he noticed that even though the guy had nothing, he seemed really at peace. And so this bothered him, and he returned to his palace, and these four sights kind of consumed him, and they left him wondering, and he could not experience all of the luxuries that he had been experiencing in the same way anymore. And so he began, he began to wonder what the purpose of life was, and asking all, all, asking all of those questions that we all ask, right, when we're, when we're confronted, especially when we're confronted with mortality. And so... Uh, There then came the event called the Great Going Forth, where he goes to the edge of his palace, and he cuts off his hair, and he gives his robe and his horse and everything to his servant, and then he just leaves it all behind, and he goes out into the world to try to discover truth. This is called the Great Going Forth. And so he... He sets out and he decides, you know, I've lived, I've lived a life of extreme luxury and that hasn't brought me any answers, hasn't brought me any truth. So I'm going to try the other extreme. I'm going to be an extreme ascetic and I'm going to deny myself everything. And he ends up getting a little group of guys that they all kind of agree that they're going to band together and renounce everything together. And then he almost starves to death. And while he's lying there nearly starving to death, he realizes that as he is on death's doorstep, he is still no closer to discovering reality, to discovering truth, than he was when he was living in the lap of luxury. And so he renounces his renunciation, and he says, okay, from now on, I'm just going to kind of stay in the middle. I'm not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be, live too much in luxury, and I'm also not going to cling too much to asceticism. I'm gonna try to just be in the middle. So he decides to sit down and meditate until he can figure out the answer, and he sits under a shade tree, because he don't wanna be too hot, you don't wanna be too cold. So he sits under, he sits under this tree, and he meditates. And um, the, uh, the legends say anywhere from a, a week to 40 days to, you know, who knows how long, but at some point in the midst of his meditating, uh, Siddhartha ends up finding enlightenment and, uh, it's under a, he, uh, the word for enlightenment in Sanskrit is Bodhi. So they call this the Bodhi tree and it's a, it's a popular image. You'll see it in a lot of Buddhist art and things like that. And he becomes the Buddha, which means awakened one. So he's enlightened, he's awakened, he's discovered finally the true nature of reality. And so uh, this is all happening when he's around 30, and he spends the rest of his life traveling and teaching, and he dies when he's 80 years old, uh, allegedly because uh, a well-meaning a uh, person in one of the villages gave him some food that had spoiled, and so he got sick from it. And even in, even in death, you'll see a lot of times, you'll see the reclining Buddhas, the Buddhas laying on his side. And they say even in death, he was at peace. He was fine. It, 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 it was okay uh, that he was dying, and he wasn't bothered. And so, so, so the Buddha's life becomes uh, something that all Buddhists strive to recreate and, and to follow. And uh, the teachings of the Buddha 
are it, have have sort of grown and developed. He never wrote anything down, and and actually, Buddhism existed as an oral tradition for hundreds of years before it ever got written down. And even today, there aren't really any sacred texts. The Buddhists don't have like a Bible that they use. And, and it kind of depends on which branch of Buddhism you follow, uh, which teachings of the Buddha you, uh, you use. And, and we'll get to all of that in a little bit. But, but uh, they all sort of use this life of Buddha as a paradigm. And then, and then the, the, the way of understanding reality that the Buddha taught is a framework for all of that. So that's what I want to talk about next. Uh, in Buddhism, there are three marks of reality, and the best way to understand all of these is by understanding their relationship back to Hinduism. Uh, so the first mark of reality in Buddhism is that everything is change. So in, in Hinduism, they said everything is change except that there's this thing called the Brahman, which is like the ocean itself. So everything's changing, but there's this ocean, and the ocean doesn't change. The ocean is always there. Uh, Buddha said, no, actually, even the ocean is not real. Uh, even the ocean doesn't really exist because everything, including the ocean itself, is constantly changing. So you can never point at something and say, that's this thing. Because as soon as you've said that, it's already changed and becomes something else. And so there, there isn't any sort of permanent reality. At least, we'll make a proviso, at least not that we can understand. We'll get to that, though. So, so rejecting this idea that there's even a Brahman was a big change away from Hinduism for Buddha. Uh, so with that... And it makes sense if you think it through. With that, Buddha said there is no self. And so this is the Atman is the Hindu idea of self. Buddhists talk about the Anatman, the no self. He said there, there is no core who you are. There is no soul. There is no you. You are the aggregate of a bunch of stuff that's always changing. And so whoever you are right now, it's not who you were a few minutes ago. And it's not who you're going to be a few minutes from now. Uh, there, is, there is no you. There is no such thing as as you, because you're, you're always changing just like everything else is always changing. And then the last, uh, the last thing is that reality is suffering. And, and really a better way, that's the way you'll hear it said, but a, really a better translation of that idea is reality is dissatisfaction. So Buddha said everything is always changing, so even think about like your very, imagine yourself in the very happiest moment that you can possibly imagine, whatever that is for you. Uh, even in that moment, you would know that that moment's not going to last because everything changes. And so even that is tinged with disappointment because you can't stay in that state of bliss forever. So all of existence, no matter how happy or how sad you are, all existence is sort of laced with this dissatisfaction, with this suffering. Okay. So I want to pause there for a second before we keep going. That was a lot of information. What questions do you have? What clarifications do you need? I thought that the Atman you said was all, all change and everything was changed. So in Hinduism, they said that the uh, every person has an Atman, which is that piece of you that is connected to Brahman. Yeah. Uh, okay, so in sorry, so in Hinduism, in Hinduism they said all is change except for ev because everything's part of the Brahman, but the Brahman is like ultimate reality, and so the so even right, and Buddha says no, there is not even an ocean. It, 
it seems like a it seems like a minor difference, and actually in practice it is a pretty minor difference, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But that is uh, uh, that's where a Buddhist and a Hindu would disagree. Hind Hindus would say everything's part of Brahman, and Buddhists would say everything's part of nothing. Nothing's part of anything. Good. Any other questions, thoughts, comments, clarifications? Yep. Kind of a dumb one. Um, no dumb questions. Uh, I guess all my depictions of Buddha was he's kind of a chubby guy. Uh huh. Um, so did he like so, overindulge? Where's the moderation? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that's uh, there are some there are some depictions of Buddha that aren't that way, and and really what you'll see is that. After, after the life of Buddha himself, it just went everywhere. I mean, it, it stayed in India, it went into China and Japan, I mean, all over the place. And it, it changed quite a lot. So that today it's actually, kind of like Hinduism, it's actually pretty hard to say anything about all Buddhists everywhere. And so a lot of those depictions of Buddha, I actually was learning today, are there are some messianic aspects of Buddhism that say Buddha's going to come back one day and sort of like take us all into nirvana, which we'll get to. Uh, and so that is, that's why he's like a fat, happy Buddha, because like he's fulfilling everything and that, so that, that's, that's what I've read. Um, I, I think that a lot of those depictions, they're, they're supposed to sort of invite you into the joy of, um, the, the, the joy of Buddhism. And it's, it, he's meant to just be depicted as kind of like a happy person that you want to be like. So, uh, yeah, I think Buddha himself still, uh, we don't obviously don't have any pictures of him or anything, but, but he uh, definitely w practiced moderation at least through his life, and that's what he taught. So, yeah, that's a great question. Yep? How did he come up with the idea of suffering or dissatisfaction when he lived the life of a prince? Uh, I think it was once, th this, is, this is the importance of the four sites. Like once he went out into the world and he realized that basically what he had been, his life that he had been living was a, a sham. Because he was living in this life of luxury and uh, wanting for nothing, and yet right outside of his walls was uh, a profound poverty and suffering. And so, he, so that then, then when he went back into the palace after he'd gone out and seen the four passing sites, uh, he realized that he could not even enjoy the things that he was enjoying because he knew that even if he never got sick, he was going to get old and die. Right? So even that was waiting for him in the future. It was waiting for everyone in the future. And so that robbed... His, his youth and his vitality of the joy that they had previously given him. That seems like it's very negative, though. Yep. If you believe in that suffering and dissatisfaction, there's no joy there. Yep. You're on your way to being a Buddhist. Be careful. Well, <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll talk, that, that, you're exactly, you're, I mean, you're, you're right where Buddha was. I mean, that, that was his problem, was once he realized that everything was changed, uh, he, he had a problem, and he couldn't enjoy things. And so that's why he left and set out into the world, because he wanted to figure out, well, well, if, if I can't enjoy things like I was before, I sort of like learned the nature of reality, then what, what do I do? Why am I here? What, what's all this for? Uh, so th those kinds of deep existential questions are what drove him to seek out enlightenment. So it, they, you're, they're striking you the way they should. What was, there was no concept of deity here, right? Uh, From Buddhist standpoint. Uh, we'll get there, but not really. So, does he give any indication other than maybe what the Hindus had as far as where did everything come from? Nope. It's just here. And in fact, uh, we'll get to this when we talk about the Buddhist conception of God. Uh, Buddha was so practical 
in his teaching that there were actually a lot of questions he just refused to answer. He wouldn't say yes or no. He just like he was like, I'm not going to talk about that. And uh, and so that would be a question. Where he would be like, we don't have any way of knowing. So what's the point of asking? Let's meditate some more. <laughs> so any other questions, thoughts? Uh, what's the draw? Yeah. I, I think that, well, I think that for a, a lot of people are drawn to it by observing Buddhist practices. Uh, they see people who are very serene and very peaceful and it's, they don't really get upset about stuff. Uh, they're pretty even keel, uh, and, and they like it and they say, oh, I'm interested in that. Uh, and, and again, it's really easy when you hear sort of pop Buddhism. Uh, to think it's really great and to think it's really attractive and say, oh, you know, all things in moderation. That, that's a great principle to live by. I guess I'm Buddhist, you know. So um, I, I think that's a lot of it. Uh, it also, it also like, like many of us, you know, many of us in here probably didn't uh, choose to be Christian at first. We probably just grew up that way and made a choice to become Christian later, you know. But we, I mean, I, I was going to church before I was born, and, and I was... I mean, I was singing songs and reading the Bible and stuff before I actually really knew that other people didn't do those things. It was just sort of like I ate every day, you know? That was just what I did. And it wasn't until later that I actually had to say, oh, wait, there's actually options, and I need to make an informed decision here, and, and is this a relationship that I want to have, and is this a worldview that I believe or not? Uh, so I think there's a lot of people, too, that they grew up Buddhist, and everyone they know is Buddhist, and that's just what they do. And uh, so... Uh, sort of. It's sort of. Yeah, yeah, and actually, a, a Buddhist would. Uh, there are a lot of Buddhists, especially outside of monasteries, like in sort of everyday Buddhism, that say that kind of thing. They're like, "What matters is the moment, and you should live in the moment, and the moment's what's important." So, so yeah, that's. All right, let's keep going because I think a lot of your questions. Uh, we're not f we're not through the worldview yet. It's probably going to get more frustrating in a moment. So. <laughs> So here we go. Here we're going to compare, and again, we're going to build off of Hinduism and talk about Buddhism. So again, in Hinduism, everything is a manifestation of Brahman. It's that ocean, right? It's that ocean that everything uh, is a manifestation of. Um, uh, Buddhism has something called sut. Okay, that's that S-A-T word, it's sut. And sut means truth or being. It's the thing that's really real. But Buddhists would say that sut is basically so unknowable and so unlike anything that we experience right now that if we were to experience it and understand it, it would be like we don't even exist anymore. So that's where, that's where it sounds like Buddhism is nihilism, where it's like Buddhism is uh, there's not really anything. Buddhists would say there is... There is something, we just have no way of comprehending what it is. And so if you think you understand something, then that's not the thing, that's not soot. Uh, now that's a, that's, 
that's a pretty interesting difference from Brahman because Hindus would say everything is an aspect of Brahman. And so when you, you know, when you are riding a bicycle outside or when you're even just breathing in air or you're eating an orange or hugging someone you love, all of those things you're experiencing Brahman in some way or another. And there's all kinds of other junk in the way like around that, but there's a core thing in the middle of that, that Atman of that experience that is real. And a Buddhist would say, nope, all of that's an illusion. Like everything that you're experiencing is wrong. You're experiencing something false. Does that make sense? Because, because soot is reality, and, and that's, you're, you haven't, you're not even close to that, especially if you're enjoying something in the moment. So, again, in Hinduism, when they talk about a person, what is a person? What is an experience? They talk about an Atman. Every person has that part of themselves that's the really real part of themselves. That's the part of you that doesn't change, the part of you that's reincarnated, uh, the part of you that is that manifestation of Brahman. In Buddhism, they don't believe in an Atman, right? It's Anatman, no self. And instead, they say a person is made up of five skanda, or five aggregates. There are five things that make you who you are, okay? Um, first is uh, your body, your physical body. That's, that makes you who you are. If you're tall or short, fat or skinny, uh, blonde or brunette, you know, black, white, whatever, like your, your physical body has a lot to do with the kind of person you are. Uh, there's your five senses, the things that you, the information that you take in from the physical world for, through your five senses, that makes up who you are. There's your perceptions. What they mean by perceptions are the mental constructs that we make of reality in our brains, basically how we interpret the world. So uh, if I have an apple in my hand and I open my hand and the apple falls, we all create a cause and effect relationship. We say the apple fell because he opened his hand and dropped it. Now, that's like you can't, you can't circle causality in a picture, right? You can't label it. You can't take it out and study it. It's an assumption that we make. Cause and effect is, is an assumption we make about the way the world works. It's a perception. Um, things like all, all the worldviews we're talking about are perceptions. They're frameworks for interpreting what happens in the world. They're frameworks for understanding reality. You can't Test them in a beaker, right? They're not the same as sensory information. And that's a different, so that's one another aggregate of who we are. Then the last two are karma, which is, again, all of the, the good or the bad that we've done that's sort of accumulated in our lives. And then the last one is consciousness, which you're going to get mad at me, but sort of is like the Atman. It's sort of like that part of ourselves that thinks and knows and understands, okay? And, again, I know that we just said that Buddhists don't believe in an Atman, but this is where you get into they sort of do. But don't say that to any of them, because they don't. Um, so, Buddhists believe in reincarnation, but it's different, a little bit different, from Hinduism, sort of. Like I said, you're going to get frustrated. It's okay. Is there something, if you were talking about the Anatman, would they be talking about this? Yeah, they would. So, so um, they would say that uh, these five things that make you up, these five aggregates, that, that's, that's yourself. Those are the five things that make up yourself. And a, a Hindu would say, really, yourself is that Atman. It's that core thing in, this, in the inside of you that's one with God, that's, that's a manifestation of the Brahman. Uh, and all those other things, those other things are actually all illusory. 
And, and Buddhists say, eh, it's all illusory, so you can lump it into one thing. So, in Buddhist reincarnation, when you die, the five aggregates all split up, they all break away, right? And they're, you're all, they're all separated back out into nothingness. And then your karma and your consciousness are what are reincarnated into a new person. Now, um, practically speaking, this isn't actually any different from Hinduism. And if you tried to sit a Hindu and a Buddhist down and get them to explain the differences to you, all three of you are probably going to wind up in a screaming match, frustrated with each other. Because practically, it doesn't really work out any differently. And it, particularly for uh, those of us in a Christian worldview that don't hold to reincarnation, it's okay to just think about it as basically the same thing. Uh, a, a big difference would be when we think about reincarnation, we think about like going to a hypnotherapist and having them regress us and like relive all of these past lives, that kind of like Hollywood image of reincarnation that we have in the West. That's more of a Hindu idea of reincarnation. The idea that there's this essential part of you that gets plopped down in lives over and over and over and lives, but it's the same person. It's the same core thing over and over and over. That is Hindu. Okay, a Buddhist would say there is no essential part of you that's the same thing over and over and over and over. Yeah, you have had past lives, but they weren't you. They were a different person, and there's just like a little part of you that's been reincarnated again. But, but it's not you because you're always changing because everything's always changing because nothing's permanent. So, I mean, again, the difference isn't super important, so if you're frustrated, just move on and say reincarnation. But hopefully that helps you tease out the differences a little bit, a little bit. Okay, I actually had to call my friend who's the expert on this stuff. Uh, and I'd say, okay, I'm trying to figure this out. Can you explain the differences? And he started laughing at me. Uh, so, okay. So what is the point then of Buddhism? Um, in Buddhism, the point of life, the goal, the end result is what they call nirvana, um, which you may or may not have known as more than a cool 90s alt-rock band. Nirvana is actually, again, practically very similar to Hinduism's moksha. It's release, it's escape from that endless cycle of death and rebirth. Okay? Uh, the difference is, in Hinduism, you become one again with the Brahman, and you're like one with the universe. In, Hindu, or in uh, Buddhism, you become sut. And we don't know what sut is, and we can't understand it, and even if we could start to describe it, then it's instantly not sut anymore. So... If you ever hear people say that Hindu or that Buddhism is nihilism, that the goal of Hinduism is non-existence, this is what they're trying to communicate. Okay, is that once you're actually enlightened and once you've actually connected with soot and you've become one with soot, uh, you're so not this anymore that it's. I mean, it's. It's basically we're talking about someone who doesn't exist in any any way that we understand because everything that we understand is wrong. So. So that's, that's why it's sort of like non-existence, but it's, it's not, it's not, it's supposed to be good. So, okay, I'm going to pause there because we're getting ready to go into the next big chunk of information. New questions and clarifications and comments. Now, is samsara the same thing as escape? Yeah, samsara is that, that same cycle of uh, death and rebirth. Okay. And it's, it's dictated by karma. Same as in Hinduism. Okay. And then karma is what steers the direction of your reincarnation. Well, then what gets you out of that cycle to go to nirvana? Enlightenment. That seems 
So come sit and meditate with me. <laughs> oh, you know. You'll know. I mean, this is it. It's uh, really the frustration you're feeling is a real thing. Like it's so ineffable, it's so un indescribable that you don't. Know. Uh, they all agreed with him, and they were they marveled at his insight into the nature of reality and and all of the things we're about to talk about. So 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 all we've really done at this point is we've talked about the life of Buddha and said that he reached this understanding. Then we've talked about how he understood the nature of reality and how that's similar to and dissimilar from Hinduism, right? Now we're going to talk about what how did the Buddha say that we reach enlightenment? How did the Buddha say that we get to Nirvana? Okay, so we haven't really gone there yet. That's what everyone's sort of circling around wanting to know, right? Okay. Uh, they can. Worship is a strong word. It's meditation and... Yeah, they can. Yep. They don't have to. Uh, it, everything always makes a lot more sense when, it's, when, when you're inside of it, right? I mean, that's... All, all, part of the reason this is so hard is because it's, it's such a different way of seeing the world than, than any of us grew up with. I mean, we are children of the Greeks. Uh, going way, 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 way back for us, time is linear. And there is no such thing as death and rebirth. And you get one shot and that's it. And I mean, that's, that's going back way before Jesus, right? Jesus didn't invent any of that. And so when you, when you get into an entirely different culture that, that for also for thousands of years has just seen the world in a completely different way, yeah, it seems really weird. But you should just know that as strange as you are finding all of this, that is, that is how strange we seem and the way we think of the world seems to someone who's grown up in these worldviews. So if your first couple of conversations are full of a lot of confusion, you probably did a great job. What were you trying to, what point were you trying to apply when you said smell something? Oh, that's a Nirvana song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, smells like teen spirit. It was just a little joke that I made to make myself chuckle when the slide came up. <laughs> yes, thank you for that courtesy laugh. All right, let's talk about Buddhism. The four noble truths that the Buddha teaches. Okay, First, the first noble truth is that to live is to suffer. That's that thing we talked about earlier, right? To, to be a person who is alive is to experience that dissatisfaction. Now, here's where it gets interesting. The second noble truth that Buddha taught is that suffering is caused by desire. Okay? The reason that we are dissatisfied is because we want stuff, because we're attached to things. What creates imbalance for us in our lives is that we, we want. We want it to stop snowing and to be summer. Right? We want food. We want to be loved. We want to feel important or significant. So our desires are what causes our dissatisfaction with the world. We want to avoid death and pain and sickness. So the third noble truth is that you end suffering by ending desire, ending your attachment to things. If you don't want, if you don't value anything, then you're not going to suffer. You're not going to be dissatisfied. Whatever happens, you're like, all right. And if something different happens, you go, okay. 
Because you don't, you don't have any desires. You don't have any wants. You don't have any values. And so the fourth noble truth is that the eightfold path is what releases us from suffering. And the eightfold path is, is symbolized by this wheel that you see in a lot of Buddhist art and, and literature and things like that. That's why it's kind of the symbol of Buddhism. Because the eightfold path is our release from suffering. So that's Buddha's solution to this world of suffering that we experience. Makes sense? Okay. Do you need clarification? Or is it just, yeah? The thing that just struck me is that this is, this is all assuming that you have control over everything. Uh, because suffering can come from an outside source that you have no control over whatsoever. So this, looking at this, it said, well, I can control anybody wanting to break into my house or steal anything from me or beat me up or do anything like that. But no, it's saying that if, uh, if you don't value your house, if you don't desire safety, if you don't desire your own personal wholeness, then people can do whatever they want to you and it doesn't affect you. I think it makes better sense if you use the word dissatisfaction mm-hmm. instead of suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I said it, it is a better, dissatisfaction is really a better way to think about it. It, it, it. You'll hear suffering. I mean, if you talk if you talk to anyone who's even remotely knowledgeable about Buddhism, they'll say suffering. That's kind of the term that just is what got used. But it, a better translation is dissatisfaction. Okay, we're ready for the Eightfold Path then? It is underwhelming. The Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. So Buddha says, if you want to be enlightened, if you want to escape suffering, then you need to do these eight things. First of all, and all of these are right. So the first one is right understanding. And what that means is the Four Noble Truths. You need to understand the nature of reality. That's the first thing. Just understand it. Second one is right intention. So this is intention, action that's not tainted by selfishness. Okay? Not tainted by desire. Then is right speech. Which, you know, this is not, this is a no-brainer. Honest, kind, truthful, right? All the, I mean, just. Then is right action. And the word that they use is ahimsa. I think it's on your sheet somewhere. It'll be up here in a few minutes. Uh, but it's a word that means no harm. So in the things that you do, make sure that you do no harm. Then is right work, which is, again, the same kind of thing. And whatever you do, however you earn uh, wage or income or whatever. Make sure that you're doing it in a certain way that you're doing no harm. Right effort, which is that you are constantly striving to improve. Asterisk, within the bounds of moderation. The seventh one is meditation, right meditation, which means that you're contemplating the nature of reality. And then the last one is right contemplation, which is where you are trying to cultivate an inner peace or an inner detachment from things. So basically, Buddhist practice is that you just do these eight things. Always. And if you follow this path, if this is the thing that steers your life, then eventually you'll be getting closer and closer and closer to that place of enlightenment where you will be detached from everything. You won't be dissatisfied anymore because you're not you don't desire anything. You don't want, you don't have any you don't value any of these things. Explain the difference again between meditation and 
Uh, meditation is more about reality and, and outer, the, the world out here, and contemplation is more about your, yourself, your own inner self. When you're meditating on the outside world. Mm -hmm. on, on, on how it's not real. Or, I mean, and it could be, you know, it could be something like reviewing, reviewing the things that have happened to you in that day, and how did you respond, and how should you have responded? Or, um, it, well, it, so this would be more like your, the difference between your reactions and the things that happened, or things you observed. It could even, you know, you saw a fight at your job, and you could just be contemplating that, you know. Oh, isn't it interesting that that was caused by this person who wanted that, and that person who wanted that, and if, if either of them had been less attached to their stuff, that wouldn't have happened. In, you know, in, interesting. Yeah. I mean, where's the logic in that? You know, I guess the only thing, uh, eventually, once you learn to desire only nirvana, you'll eventually, I guess, not even desire that. I guess. You just made that. Yeah, I did. <laughs> so. This, this is the part where, where I said, you know, Buddhism just sort of at a glance seems very, very attractive. Like, again, who, who looks at this list of stuff and says, I don't want to hang out with a person like that? I mean, like, really? You know, uh, what, what, what in any of this would you not want to emulate? You know, what up here would, you know, Jesus, Jesus tells us to be careful with our words, right? Jesus tells us not to do harm to other people. Right? Jesus loves for us to meditate on the scriptures, right? To contemplate our own inner self and how we're doing spiritually. Like these are things, right? So, so th this is where I was saying, like, again, just at a, at a kind of a surface level, Buddhism seems very uh, simple and very attractive. Uh, and there's a lot of people that just, they just kind of take this off the top and go, oh yeah, I'm down. I like it. I'm in. I guess I'm a Buddhist. So. Yeah. Up, people try to do that just like they did with Jesus and Krishna and Hinduism. So, and there, there's there's a good amount of overlap between things you know this kind of stuff and what Jesus taught. So yeah, you can see you can see how that you can understand at least how uh, people would do that. In fact, I had a friend one time who told me that he was going to write a book about how Christianity and Buddhism were the same thing, and I was like, you, you can't. We'll get into why you can't do that in a little bit, but I was like, you can't do that, man. And he got all mad at me. He's like, they're the same thing, and I was like, but they're not. Really, like, there's some really basic differences, and we'll get to that. But it, he was, he, as far as I know, he never wrote the book. So. so, let's talk about, is Buddhism atheistic? And the answer is no and yes. Uh, Buddhism is technically, technically non-theistic. Uh, as we saw earlier, it rejects the idea of Brahman, this Hindu conception of God, because everything has changed. And so when people would ask Buddha himself if there is a god or gods, or if he believed in the gods or followed the gods, that was one of the questions he just wouldn't answer. He would say, that doesn't matter. All that matters is following the Eightfold Path. So I'm not going to talk about that. And so uh, there are branches of Buddhism that are atheistic, that say there are no gods. There are branches, as we'll see here in just a moment, that are theistic, sort of, that believe that there are god-like beings uh, but it's really hard to, if someone's really like a, 
a hardcore strict Buddhist, it's kind of hard to pin them down on whether they believe in some sort of gods or not. And again, most of them would say, that, like, it doesn't matter. It's, what matters is the Eightfold Path. So, so yes and no. Cer- certainly they're not theistic in the sense that Christians are theistic, and that, that is an important point we'll get to in a minute. Okay, so let's talk about Buddhism today. There are three major branches of it, and I listed them for you. Uh, the one that you have probably seen the most in movies <laughs> is uh, Theravadan Buddhism. This is the Buddhism that's built around monastic communities, and their attitude is sort of like, yeah, like anyone can be Buddhist, but really monks. Like that, if you really want to be a Buddhist, you need to be a monk. Uh, this is the one I, I learned when I was doing my research that probably is actually the closest to Buddha's original teachings. Uh, they're the ones that, they're the most conservative branch. They've sort of added in the least amount of new traditions and things like that. They're, they're, the, they're, the, they're the monks, the Buddhist monks, that only subsist on what they receive from other people. And so a lot of times their monasteries will be right in the middle of town, and people will come and just give them cookies or rice or different things like that, and they, they live off of only what they receive from, from their community. So... Uh, the next branch is called Mahayana Buddhism, and that is a term that means the great vehicle. And so the idea was of Theravadan is like only kind of for monks, and it's, it's for everyone, but it's really for monks. Mahayana Buddhism is really for everyone. Uh, it's, the, it's the great vehicle, the big ship that anyone could do. It's the most popular form, and there are tons and tons and tons of different schools of it. So if you have encountered uh, Buddhism, if you've been in a, into a temple or something like that, somewhere in the world it's probably been Mahayana. Uh, the Mahayanas are the ones who are theistic, sort of. They have introduced this concept of what are called bodhisattvas, and a bodhisattva is a person who has a, or a being who has achieved enlightenment, and they almost went to nirvana, but because of their compassion, they returned and reincarnated or are some sort of a spirit, and they are helping other people reach enlightenment. And then there are also all kinds of like gods and spirits and they're either good or bad and they either help or hurt you. So you'll find, and again, it, there isn't a rhyme or a reason for this. It's just, it depends on which school of Buddhism a particular Buddhist is following, who they look at as a bodhisattva and who they don't and all of that kind of stuff. So it's just, there's, this is the point where it becomes nearly impossible to say anything useful other than that, hey, this is a thing and don't be surprised if you run into it. Uh, uh, I don't, you know, I don't, I've never seen that. Uh, I, in Buddhist art, I've really only seen depictions of the Buddha. Uh, so they might, and it, it may even be that there's only like a couple of schools that do, or, but I, it's, it's certainly not something I see a lot, uh, really ever, that I've thought of. Certainly nothing like what you see in Hinduism. So, and then the last one that probably almost all of you have heard of is Zen, Zen Buddhism. That's so Zen, Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance. Uh, there's, and, and Zen is a school of Mahayana Buddhism, okay? Uh, it comes from the seventh step in the Eightfold Path, which was the step of meditation, which is probably, if you've thought about Zen and Buddhism at all, is what you've probably thought about is meditating. Uh, it's actually the Japanese word for meditation. 
Uh, so by the time by the time Buddhism got over to Japan and this particular form of Mahayana Buddhism had made it from India into China and then over into Japan, it got called Zen Buddhism, which is just meditating Buddhism. So you can probably make some speculations about what they value. Um, they value meditation, and so that's uh, so. What's what's interesting is a lot of people uh, a lot of people put. Um, Zen, when they think of Buddhism, they think of Zen Buddhism, and they think of the Zen's like things that all Buddhists do, but it's actually just one branch of Buddhism. So, um, uh, it just, it's, it's really focused on meditation. Yeah. So, sort of like I was, uh, when I was in graduate school, I don't think, I think actually I wasn't even, I hadn't even started grad school yet. I wasn't a youth pastor yet or anything, and I was talking with someone, and I said I was getting ready to start grad school, and they said, oh, what are you studying? And I said, oh, I'm going to be a religious studies major, and they were like, you mean you don't ever want to have sex? And I thought, wow, okay, you went from me being a religious studies major to me being a Christian, which was true. Uh, then you assumed that I was going to be a minister, which technically was also true. But then you also assumed I was Catholic. Like, you made, like, leaps and leaps and leaps of assumptions, some of which just sort of happened to be right. Uh, and then you asked me a question. And that's sort of like what happens when someone says, oh, Zen, that's Buddhism, right? I mean, it, yeah, some, some people, some Buddhists are Zen Buddhists, but there's all kinds of other forms of Buddhism that are not Zen. And so, uh, again, I certainly don't think, at least over here, that if you accidentally ask if someone's Zen, they're going to get mad or anything like that. But just, just, just know that that's when we talk about Zen Buddhism, even though that's sort of what gets talked about and popularized, it's, it's only one school of Buddhism. But it's not the most popular form of Buddhism. Uh, it, it, well, Mahayana is widely the most popular. It's sort of like Mahayana is sort of like Protestantism. It's definitely a particular strand, but there's... How many different Protestant denominations are there? So, so saying, there's, Zen is a school of Mahayana, so it would be like saying, we're Nazarene, we're also Protestant, um, and all Nazarenes are Protestants, but not all Protestants are Nazarene. So all Zen are Mahayana, but not all Mahayana are Zen. There's lots and lots of other schools of Mahayana Buddhism. It seems like the Zen doesn't follow the moderation idea. Uh, they they do. They they don't ignore the other steps. That's just the one that they. That's the one that they have found the most useful in, uh, and that's the one that they put most of their focus on. But they would they would still definitely advocate moderation in all things. Is this similar to the Hindu, where they pick which one they want to follow? Like the Hindus pick their god that they want to worship. Um. You know, I don't know. My guess would be that it probably ha probably uh, at least if you're in an area of the world where you have options, but in a lot of places there's probably just a school that's been dominant there, and so that's what you do. Um, yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh, you know, that may have something to do with the different schools, but it could also just be, I mean, it's, again, it's sort of like when you see different pictures of Jesus and sometimes he's smiling and sometimes he's on a cross and sometimes he's carrying a lamb and looking real stern and like they're just, they're just different aspects of Buddhism uh, that different worshipers or uh, adherents have found particularly meaningful or helpful in their, in, in their experience. So. Uh, that that is more superstition than anything. Yeah, I mean, it, again, uh, I'm trying to think what would be a, a, a good corollary in Christianity. Yeah, yeah, sure, like a rabbit's foot or something like that. Um, it doesn't, as far as I know, there's no actual. And, and I, I think Buddha himself would say, like, what are, what are you doing? Like, come on, I'm I'm just a guy. Like, uh, so. 
Okay, so despite having all of those different branches of Buddhism, there are really a couple of things that you can pretty much count on all Buddhists to agree about. Uh, one of those is that principle of ahimsa, which is doing no harm. And the other is the value of education or learning. Uh, and again, that first step on the Eightfold Path is right understanding, right? So again, it's that learning the right path and doing the right things. Uh, so so all, all Buddhists are pretty much going to agree that those two things are really important. Do no harm in whatever you do and learn, uh, learn about the, the nature of reality and the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and all that. Okay, uh, we're about to go into the last couple of sections, and we're going to have to move eh, quick-ish. But before we do that, any last questions, thoughts, comments, clarifications about Hindu worldview, Hindu, or sorry, Buddhist worldview, uh, Buddhist beliefs, anything like that? You know, um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, I would, and I'm going to guess there because I've never actually sat and talked with any of those monks that have, have done this, but my guess would be, so the question was, uh, in, in, in a lot of Buddhist traditions, you see that it's the monks who are the ones who are uh, engaging in like self-immolation self or a lot of the really extreme acts of uh, what we'd call like the kind of creative nonviolence. Um, I would say that's actually probably really similar to Gandhi and Hinduism in that it's, it, it's probably actually their religious conviction uh, that they want to see, uh, they want to see the, the, the injustice and the suffering of their people stopped. And so they, they go and engage in, uh, in these acts of giving up their selves, which they've learned not to be attached to for, the, you know, for some kind of a greater good. That would, that would be my guess. I could be totally wrong. Yeah, and now and again, just like we talked about last week with Hinduism, just because Buddhist philosophy and teaching is do no harm, that doesn't mean actual every actual Buddhist follows that. Um, there's there are plenty of wars fought in the name of Buddhism and all, and just like with any other religion you can think of. Uh, so again, at some point you get into the you get into the debate of uh, human nature, and then the teachings of the religion just sometimes are in conflict, just like in any other religion. So, anything else? It seems like they venerate their uh, uh, relatives. I mean, their elders, elders mm -hmm. and the people that died. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Ancestors. Uh, I, again, that probably depends on the part of the world you're in. Uh, if they're, if you're in a culture like in a, in a Chinese culture or a Japanese culture where that's just sort of like a cultural thing. You're probably going to find forms of Buddhism that lend themselves to that. Though, again, as far as I know, most forms of Buddhism venerate and respect wisdom of the elderly just in general. So that, that's a pretty easy bridge from veneration of wisdom to, uh, you know, veneration of ancestors and things like that. So, good. Anything else? All right, let's talk about then how, if we're going to be building bridges to Buddhism, what are some things that both Christians and Buddhists agree about? 
Uh, first of all, and this is a big difference from Hinduism, we both have a founder. We both have a clear person that we can point back to and say, that's, that's our guy. You know, for them it's Buddha, for us it's Jesus. And so, uh, un- unlike Hinduism, which we saw is so hard to pin down because you just, there's no really one way that you follow, both Buddhism and Christianity have a way. And it's a guy, and you can point to him, and you can talk about his life, and you can talk about what he did, and have his example, and, and all those kinds of things. Uh, second, Buddhism, more than a lot of world religions, takes the problem of evil very seriously. Uh, Hinduism, as we saw last week, doesn't really have a place for evil. Uh, it's just like, ah, it happens sometimes, and you just shouldn't worry about it too much, and you should just kind of, uh, you know, don't if, if it's, it'll get better or it'll get worse, just, you know, accumulate good karma and you'll be fine. And the whole, the whole reason that Buddhism came about as a system is because of these existential questions that Buddha was asking about suffering and pain. Uh, and so the, the whole philosophy, the whole religion, grew out of really trying to wrestle with and take the problem of evil seriously. And this is something that I think Christianity does very well, too. Um, there, there are some religions that just don't really have a good answer for the question of, of why do we suffer. And, and Christianity, I would say, doesn't really have a great answer. I mean, that's the whole point of the book of Job, is when Job finally has a chance to sit down with God and get an answer, and then God asks him questions first, Job says, never mind, I withdraw my question. Right? So, I mean, Christianity uh, really doesn't try to answer it, but Christianity uh, does have a God who suffers with us, and a God who redeems suffering and brings good out of bad, brings life out of death. And so the, the Christian framework, I think more than a lot of other faiths, uh, at least takes our suffering somewhere and does something meaningful and helpful with it. Uh, and I th- I, that's a great place to build a conversational bridge with a, a Buddhist person is talking about, that we don't have to ignore suffering and we don't have to downplay how bad suffering is. We can, we can acknowledge hurt and pain uh, and, and despair uh, because our, our worldviews both have uh, significant room for them. And I think that's good. But we believe there's suffering because we live in a fallen world. Yep. But the real problem is why do good people suffer? Sure. That's oh yeah, yeah. Sure. But you know, I've uh, you don't deserve it. I've you never. Know. I don't know that I've. I've I've rarely met someone who is suffering who thinks that they deserve it. <laughs> um, I, I, there, there are a few people, right? Some people say, you know, I know that this is a result of my actions. But most of the people I've met when they're suffering and they're saying, why me? It's they, they, everyone's righteous in their own eyes. So, uh, but yeah, but your point, your point is right. We, we do have an explanation for it, but there's still, uh, there's still that, there's still that point where it breaks down. And we, we wonder why. We, we cry out the way Jesus did. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? Where, where did you go? Why is this happening to me? Um, we're gonna split some hairs about this in a little bit, but. Just like we saw with Hinduism, uh, Buddhism and Christianity both warn about the danger of desire. Uh, Both systems say, don't get too attached to your stuff. Again, there's some differences in that too, but uh, it's a great place to start. So, you know, we both recognize that being too attached to material things can actually pull us away from the spiritual path that we're supposed to be on. And then finally... Again, uh, just like we saw with Hinduism, we both really value spiritual practices. Uh, for the Buddhists, it's that eightfold path. Uh, for Christians, it's reading scripture and prayer. Uh, we both value meditation, though it looks a little bit different. Uh, we, both, we both value doing things that help us connect better than it breaks down. We say with God, 
right? A Buddhist would say, help connect us better with not, not connecting. But we both value those things. We, can, we, we, both, uh, we both engage in these disciplines, and we think that they're important for us. So that's a, that's a nice thing. Uh, some of the things that we both value, we both value education in some sense. I, I know very few Christian denominations that think that Christians shouldn't be learning the story of God, learning how to read the scriptures, learning how to be more faithful prayers. Uh, I mean, how many have, have you ever been to a church service where they didn't have a sermon, right? I mean, that, I mean maybe, maybe a couple, but by and large, we value learning, and so do Buddhists. Like I already said, we both value spiritual practices, Uh, we both particularly value peacemaking as a spiritual practice. Uh, Buddhists have the, the idea of ahimsa, do no harm. Uh, Christians have where Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Right? We, both, we both value bringing order to pain. And then again, we both do value taking care of the natural world. Uh, again, the, the, both of these are things we talked about last week with Hinduism as well, but uh, both of these are things that, that we, we really value. So, any questions, thoughts about those? Again, if you're just looking for a place to start with a, a Buddhist person, these are great places to start. Did you have a comment, Mike? They always sing about Japan, World War II. <laughs> yep. Not exactly peacemaking. No, and you're right. And, and again, that's why I said the problem we run into with all religions is that we have what they teach and we have what people do. And human nature being what it is, uh, you can tell people to be nice all you want, but it doesn't always happen. Okay, now, uh, any, any last question or comments? Because we're going to move into the last section. I wanted to be able to spend a little bit of time here on the important disagreements between Christianity and Buddhism. Okay. So, again, this is one we talked about last week, but it's still really important. Uh, in Buddhism, life is cyclical, and everything just repeats over and over and over and over. Right? Everything that's happened, happening has already happened. It's going to happen again. Um, and, and that's because in Buddhism, there's really just no place for it to go, right? It's all, it's all illusion. So there, there's no, the, the goal is soot, which is so indescribable, we can't even talk about it. So there's, there's really nothing, there's nowhere for anything, all it can do is sort of swirl around and around and around and around, just like a big mess. And Christians believe that the world has a definite beginning and, and it's going somewhere. Everything is moving in a particular direction, and that God is actually taking, it's not just moving, God is taking it somewhere. God has a, God has a desire for history that, that is being enacted even now, and we are being swept up in that story. So that's a, that's a big difference. It's a, it's a deep foundational difference. Uh Another big difference is the difference between Sat and Yahweh as God. Uh, in Buddhism, if there are gods at all, whatever they are, are all still part of that false reality, that thing that's not really existence, not like Sut is. And the gods' essences, again, if, if they even believe in them, whatever, if, whatever they are, it's identical to reality, which is it's all false. We're the same thing as them, and they're the same thing as everything else, and, and none, of it, none of it is real. None of it is truth. And so even these spirits, if they believe in them, are trying to escape. They're on that same journey that we're on. Their end goal is the same as ours. 
That's, that's very, very different from, from Yahweh in the scriptures. In the scriptures, God is the creator of the world. God came first, and then came the world. And it's the other way around in Buddhism. Sut was there, and then everything else was there. And, and whatever else, whatever gods you believe in, came out of Sut somehow, maybe. Uh, God is distinct from creation. God is not a part of creation. God is not in creation. Things in creation didn't cause God. God is wholly separate and distinct and over. And then God is not trying to escape from creation. God is not on the same path as creation, but God is rescuing and redeeming creation. God is steering the story of creation. God is, God is enacting God's will in creation. So those are, those are pretty big differences. Any questions about those first ones, those first two? The nature of time and the nature of history and then the nature of gods? I'm a little confused with the first two on the side. Okay. The gods are part of a false reality, but they're identical to... The false reality. Because rea- remember, reality is false. So whatever, like you and I, we're, we're false. Like what's happening here isn't permanent. It's, 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 not, it's not real. Sort of. Soot is real, though. We're not soot. We're not truth. We're not permanence we're not existence we're just illusion maya soot is real maybe we as soon as we say it's real or permanent we started describing it and now it's yeah see i mean that's that's why that's why it's a lot of times people say it's easier to say buddha like the goal is non-existence because it's so different from anything we can conceive of that it might as well not exist and so even whatever gods we want to talk about are part of this false non-soot. Good. Any other questions, comments, clarifications? Okay. In Buddhism, desire is bad. Okay. Creation, the world reality, I probably shouldn't have used the word creation there, I probably should have used reality, is fundamentally impermanent. None of this stuff is going to stay here. It's all going to be gone. One day, it's all, it's all changing all the time right now. And in Buddhism, desire causes suffering. The reason we suffer is because we want things. And if we just didn't want anything, then we wouldn't desire, or we wouldn't suffer. We wouldn't be dissatisfied. Okay, and so, so Buddhists teach that desire must be eliminated. I guess it doesn't have to be, but if you don't want to suffer, if you don't want to be satisfied, then, then it has to be eliminated. Now, this is where I was saying earlier, even though we sort of agree that the, that the world is dangerous, that things are dangerous, here's where we disagree. Uh, for us, Christians, we believe desire can be bad. Absolutely, we believe it can be bad. But we were given desires, the scriptures teach us that we were given desires to point us back to God. The reason we enjoy creation is so that we might enjoy the creator. The reason we receive gifts is so that we would appreciate the gift giver. And so when we, when we experience things in our lives, we don't have to say that these are bad and that our enjoyment of them is bad. That our enjoyment of them is actually keeping us trapped in a false reality. We can actually say, no, when, when we're actually enjoying in, in the right way, when we're enjoying whatever, love from our families, things that we've been able to acquire, uh, different things like that. When we enjoy them, we're actually connecting with God in a way that God created us and intended us to. And so things can actually be really, really good and be enjoyed in a really good way. 
what we do say is that misaligned desires is what causes idolatry. Okay, it's when we mistake, Paul says this in Romans 1, it's when we mistake the creation for the creator. And we get distracted by the things that we like and, and those take the place of the thing maker. So that, that's where we say desire can be bad, but it doesn't have to be and it shouldn't be. And we, we can actually learn to value our things the right way, the way that God values them, the reasons that God gave them to us. And that takes that takes discipline, it takes practice, it takes learning, it takes being a part of a community of people who's all trying to figure that out together. But things are not bad. The world is not fundamentally bad. The world is a gift from God. Okay, any questions about that? That's that's an important distinction, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, they create all kinds of stuff. They buy all kinds of stuff. They seem to be as sucked, sucked into materialism as the United States. As our Christian nation is? I mean, I would, I would, I would point at America and say we can, you know, e- even at the height of our Christendom, we were very much also consumers, and there were plenty of people that were caught up in consumerism at the expense of our Christendom. I mean, it's, you know, people are people, and just because, a, just because a nation is majority a particular faith doesn't mean that all of the people in that nation adhere to that faith or even that they uh, actually, you know, are, should be labeled that, you know. I think, I think all the charges you can levy against Buddhist Japan, you can level against Christian America when it comes to consumerism and how we use stuff. So, but, good, but yeah, good observation. Anyone else? Okay, I have one more big important one before we close up. Uh, th- and this is, again, not a surprise, but it's where everything goes, right? In Buddhism, the goal is nirvana, which is the end of the self. You, the, you, the way you think of yourself is an illusion. And so the goal is for you to get rid of that, to, for you to not desire the things that make you who you are, those, those aggregates, those five pieces of yourself uh, that, that you would not enjoy or um, desire that that continue. Right, because the self is an illusion, and that's going to get reincarnated over and over and over and over in different forms. And so, don't don't be attached to yourself. And the goal in Christianity is very much the opposite of that. The goal in Christianity is Christ-likeness. Uh, the goal of Christianity is sanctification—that we would become holy, and not that we would become Jesus clones. Not that we would lose ourselves, but that we would actually become most fully who we were created to be in the first place. Um, I didn't have a chance to look up which church father it was, but one of my favorite, uh, one of my favorite quote, quotes is that we are most fully ourselves when we are most fully in Christ. Right? And so, so we believe that God gave us particular gifts and talents and abilities and personalities and those kinds of things, and that, that God desires that we be those things in the most perfect way possible, which means the most Christ-like way possible, and that that's good, and that that's celebrated, and that we're all different parts of a body, and that we all, we shouldn't all just be clones of each other, that we should all be different, because we're supposed to work together like a body, it's just like you don't have a body full of hands, you have a body full of all kinds of different body parts, and so I need you to be most fully you in Christ, and you need me to be most fully me in Christ, and you need the person next to you to be most fully them in Christ, and then we all need to work together, and so the goal of Christianity isn't the destruction of the self, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the finding of the true self in Christ. Um, and that can get confusing uh, because, you know, Paul says, you know, I, I die and Christ lives in me and that kind of stuff. And so there, is, there are certainly aspects of ourself that need to die. 
Um, but, but we believe that ultimately what gets redeemed and restored is that, that self that God created us to be in the first place. So we get one self and we get one eternal life, right? And we don't get over and over and over and over and over. That's, a, then that's, that's, a, that's an important difference, you know, where a Buddhist would say, uh, I need to not be very attached to myself and I need to be, I need to, to sort of like become one uh, and, and with everything else. We would say, no, 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 like we actually celebrate who we are and we, uh, we believe that, that those are gifts from God. Any questions about that? We're almost out of time, so I want to try to get us finished. Tommy. Uh, you know, you could, you, I think if you talked about heaven carefully, the question was, isn't heaven really a better parallel with nirvana? And, you know, if you, if you go and look at the very end of the scriptures in Revelation, what you have is not really heaven in the way we traditionally think of it, but it, this, this restored and renewed and redeemed creation where God and humanity are living together in sort of this re-restored Eden. And so, um, yeah, I mean, as, as long as when you say heaven, that's what you're talking about, yes. But, but there again... What you, what you, when you read Revelation, when you read actually any of the biblical depictions of heaven, it's all of this very physical language, right? the lion laying down with the lamb, and even all that kind of stuff. It's not, uh, it's not otherworldly. It's not, it's not strange, and it's not unknowable. It's a very familiar. You know, it's not, it's not like we were the, um, it's not like we were just like an experiment because God got bored, and what He was really doing was this heaven thing over here. Like, like this is. You know, we are, we are physical people created to live in a physical eternity, and we're going to, have, like, the, the, the world isn't just, like, something that God gave us as a placeholder. Like, matter is good, creation is good, uh, and, and it, it's certainly broken and fallen and needs to be redeemed and restored, but that's, that's going on even now through the, through the work of the church and through what, uh, through what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, so so that's, that's why I said Christ-likeness is really, I mean, again, however you want to talk about it, but... All of that is very different from, uh, from the goal of Buddhism. So, Other questions, thoughts, comments, clarifications? Okay, well, if you would like to, if you have other questions that I did not get to or if things come to you later, uh, you have all those ways to contact me that I've given you before. They're on the bottom of your sheets this week also. Uh, and then I will ask my friends who know much more about this than I do. But I hope that this has equipped you to be able to have truth-seeking conversations with people who are Buddhists. I hope that it has uh, made everything a little bit less foreign to you. I hope it's given you a good jumping off point for you to begin building relationships with them. And I hope that, uh, I hope that you, you now feel at least a little bit ready uh, to be able to talk with them about the important differences between Buddhism and Christianity. Uh, and that through seeking truth together with them, you will both, uh, you will both find a clearer revelation of who Jesus is. So uh, let's pray together and then we're out almost right on time, which is a miracle. God, we are thankful for this evening that we've had together, uh, despite the weather. We're thankful for the opportunity that we have had to consider a worldview that is very, very different from our own. And so right now, we pray for all of those people in our lives who are either uh, introductory level Buddhists or maybe people who have been Buddhists their whole lives. Uh, and we pray that, that we would uh, be able to know who those people are and be able to seek them out and to begin some spiritual conversations with them, begin to build some relationships with them, that ultimately 
both of us would come to a clearer, fuller understanding of you, that both of us would see a clearer revelation of your son, Jesus, who is the truth. Uh, We pray that as we go out from here, these things that we have learned would help us to know our own faith better, that they would help us to know you better, that they would help us to clarify in our own minds uh, what you have taught us through your scriptures and through the witness of your church. And we pray that in all of these things, we would be truth seekers. We would be people that get to know Jesus better and better and better, and that we would be lights uh, in the darkness for him. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. All right, thanks, everyone. Next week is Judaism. So come ready for that. And uh, we'll be getting into a worldview that's a little bit more familiar to us. And, uh, yeah, I'll see you next week.